Boo, 2006, October 31st. Today is Lecture 28, Inside the Earth, on the Interior of the Earth, which will begin in just a moment. So today's lecture is going to be on the interior of the Earth. This is a very important lecture for a lot of what comes in the rest of this class. And the reason for that is that the Earth is going to be one of our primary points of comparison with the other planets in the solar system. When we took a look at Mars, when we look at Venus, when we look at Mercury, we're going to be continually coming back and comparing it to what we see here on the Earth. And it kind of makes sense because the Earth is the only planet so far that we've been able to study in tremendous detail. We can actually do an awful lot and learn about the Earth and then apply those lessons elsewhere. But it actually works both ways. What we're going to see is one of the major themes of comparative planetology, which is the approach that I'm going to take in this class, is not only can we apply the lessons of Earth, the things we see on other worlds in our solar system, we can apply some of the lessons we've learned on those other planets back to the Earth to better inform us as to what the Earth is actually like. So today we're going to concentrate on the Earth as a planet. We're going to look at the physical body of the interior of the Earth and its surface. Tomorrow we're going to look at its atmosphere, the other main component that we're going to want to compare with the other, other planets. So the key ideas today are a little bit more uh, complicated looking than most. We're going to introduce the idea of the interior structure of the Earth. It's been revealed by the process of seismology. We're going to talk about the process of differentiation, something we're going to keep an eye out for throughout the solar system. It's a process of heavy things sinking to the middle and lighter things floating to the top. So we end up with a solid inner iron core surrounded by a molten iron outer core and then a thick rocky mantle and a thin rocky crust, solid crust, floating on top of that. And that's kind of the, what the interior of the Earth is going to look like. This is going to we're going to see how that comes about and how we've learned about that structure here in just a bit. The other main piece that we're going to get from the Earth's interior is a geodynamo, basically fluid currents deep in the molten iron outer core of the Earth are going to lead to the generation of a magnetic field in the Earth. And it's one of the properties that shows us we have a dynamic working interior in the Earth. And we're going to see this again, not only what is, causes the Earth's magnetic field, but we're going to be looking for magnetic field around other planets and ask, you know, that is another piece of evidence that they have a liquid convecting interior. Finally, we're going to look at the very outer sheath of the Earth, the crust of the Earth, and we're going to see it broken up into a series of tectonic plates. The crust of the Earth is not all one piece, but it's broken up like pieces of an eggshell in a big puzzle that fit together. These pieces float on top of the mantle, and they give rise to a process called plate tectonics, which leads to the phenomenon of continental drift. And we'll say a little bit about how that's important. And we'll talk a bit about plate boundaries and hot spots on these tectonic plates. These are the places where these forces that Hutton and others showed of uplift and, up, uplift and repaving occur on the Earth. They've caused a lot of the Earth's geologic history to be erased over the course of geologic history. We're going to then ask when we go to other planets like Mars and Venus and Mercury and other places with solid surfaces, do I see signs of geologic activity? Do I see signs of repaving? Does it take the form of what we see on the Earth or is it something different? So this is why we're going to spend a lot of time on this today. Here's a nice picture of the Earth. This is the Earth looking at the Indian subcontinent here. It's a beautiful picture from, from um, space-borne satellites. The Earth is a planet. It's the third planet out from the Sun. It's a spherical body consisting mostly of silicates. It's got a very, very thin shell of an atmosphere around it, which is the source of weather. And if I was to take the Earth and unwrap it a little bit to a nice relief map here and then use a computer to scrub away the clouds, 
what I would find is that the Earth is covered about 71% in ocean and wa water oceans consisting of, of water H2O, fairly um, salt water for the most part, and 29% land. And then there are polar caps on the northern and southern extremes where there isn't much sunlight and you get an accumulation of ice. The Antarctic continent, the southern hemisphere, and then basically just simply an ocean, the Arctic Ocean with ice sheets on top of it, but no solid land underneath the pole itself, except you know, at, at the ocean floor. So this is our view of the Earth unwrapped. It's got a solid surface, but a lot of that surface, 71% of it is underwater. So it's a place where a lot of liquid water can survive. If I took and walked outside to the to anywhere on the Earth and I started collecting up samples of rock and picking them up, what I would find is there's a fair diversity of individual minerals, but there are certain basic kinds of rocks that we encounter all the time. For example, the, the primary constituent of most of the material on the Earth consists of silicon or silicates. These are crystalline compounds containing silicon and oxygen. So for example, a granite rock or these very nice quartz rocks, which were Actually, these are, these are nice river rocks picked up from a nice Ohio River. These things are primarily silicon in form. We do find occasional rocks that are very, very iron rich. This is a basalt. This is actually a, a solidified chunk of, of iron rich lava. It's got a couple of inclusions of crystals in there which have some silicates. So we also see some material that's extremely rich in iron. It doesn't have as much silicates and iron is the primary constituent. The third kind of rock that we would see a lot of, and we see a lot of it around here in Ohio, for example, is limestone. Now, this is actually from a road cut in upstate New York. This is limestone is not really so much silicate or iron, it's carbon bearing. And a lot of what this material is, this limestone, is actually the dead skeletons of, of old sea creatures. This is an ancient um, set, marine sediment. This is an ancient seafloor, which is covered down with all kinds of carbonate, carbon bearing materials. So we see three basic kinds of processes going on. We see a lot of silicates. These are fairly lightweight materials. A silicate rock is relatively light, low density. We see really dense, heavy basalts, very iron-rich materials. And then we see these very carbon-rich materials, these the so-called carbonaceous rocks. Now, what's going on here? Why do we see these very stark differences in composition? Where do these various pieces come from? Well, first thing you want to look at is the Earth is pretty big. Okay, it's got a, uh, a radius from the center to the outside of about 6,400 kilometers. It's got a fairly large mass. Gravity is pulling all of that mass down towards the center of the Earth. So as you dig deeper into the Earth, you're going to have a greater weight of stuff on top of you, and the weight of that stuff crushing down on top of you is going to generate fairly high pressure. When you press on rock, when you press on, on air, and you move it to very high pressure, this compression leads to heating. As you go deeper and deeper, the compression increases, and so the amount of heating increases. And so we expect, as you, if you were to dig down towards the center of the Earth in sort of Jules Verne fashion, you would find the Earth around you getting hotter and hotter. And it would also be getting denser because the stuff is more compressed. There's more matter packed into a smaller space. This process of heat hot in the middle, cool on the outside, if the entire body of the Earth was molten, maybe early in its formation period, is going to give rise to a process called differentiation. You start out with a liquid mix and everything is just sort of separate. All the iron and the silicates and everything else are all sort of jumbled together in kind of a big molten goo. But if you look carefully at what happens as that stuff begins to cool off, is the heavy stuff, the iron and the nickel, which are the heaviest, most abundant of the heavy metals that you find out of the stuff that the Earth formed out of, are going to sink towards the middle 
and the lighter materials, which primarily are the silicates, are going to float on top of that. A good analogy to use is go out to the grocery store and buy mint chocolate chip ice cream. Okay, it's got you know, ice cream, sort of funny green food coloring in it, mint flavor, and then there's little chocolate bits spread evenly throughout it. And then forget to put it in the freezer. I know it's a crime to ever waste ice cream, but put it on the, put it on the counter, just leave it alone for a while and hope your roommate doesn't come by and eat it. What's going to happen? Well, over time, the ice cream's going to melt. It's going to slowly turn liquid. What's going to happen is all of the heavy chocolate bits are going to sink to the bottom of the carton, and all the light, fluffy, butterfat bits, the ones that make the ice cream really good, are going to float to the top, and you're going to get stuff in the middle. That's a process of differentiation. When you assemble a planet like the Earth, if it goes through a completely molten phase, it will start out with everything mixed, but as it begins to cool off, it's a little bit of an opposite process, the heavy stuff's going to sink to the bottom under gravity and the lighter stuff's going to float on the top. So early in the formation of the Earth, you get sort of a mixture of lightweight silicates and heavy iron. The iron all sinks to the middle and collects in the center. So you basically deplete the outer layers of iron and then you mix the silicates up to the top. That's why we see such a strong differentiation between iron and silicates in the rocks that we see around us. Most of the crust is made of silicates. So you wait a while, and the outer crust begins to solidify, and the Earth will settle itself into kind of a layer cake kind of structure. You're going to end up with a hot, high-pressure, dense interior made up mostly of the iron and nickel that sank to the bottom during formation, and the outer layers are going to be cooler, low pressure of solid silicates that floated up onto the top, much like the little butterfat bits float to the top of the melting ice cream. So if I peel the earth open, this is the picture that we've, we've been able to produce using seismology. We'll see in a moment how that works in detail. Geophysicists have been able to peer inside the earth and actually figure out that the earth has a kind of, well, not so much a layer cake kind of, kind of thing. It's sort of, like, it's sort of like one of those awful gooey, candies that we're going to be giving out tonight to all the kitties coming around the room. You got sort of a nice solid center there, so that's kind of your, your, your nut down there in the middle. You get the very center is very, very high pressure, very, very high density because all the weight of the earth is crushing down on it. It consists of mostly iron and nickel because that's where most of the stuff sank. And so we end up with an inner core. It's really deep. Basically, the base of the iron core is about 5,100 kilometers below our feet right now. It contains about 2% the mass of the Earth, and it's solid. Now, the temperature down there is about 7,000 degrees Kelvin. In round numbers, that's a little over 1,000 degrees Kelvin hotter than the surface of the sun. And yet, iron, which at regular in this room, will usually melt at around 700, 800 Kelvin, is solid. And the reason is because of all the immense pressure of all the weight of stuff on top of it, you get an effect called pressure freezing. So even though the temperature of the iron is way above its normal, up here in the air, low pressure environment melting temperature, in fact, under the tremendous pressure of the weight of the earth, it's pressure frozen into a solid iron nickel core. So there's a solid iron nickel core at the very center of the earth. Now once you move out a little bit from the center, the pressure lets off a bit, and that iron begins to melt, and the nickel begins to melt, and you get the form of iron you would expect in a hot, dense environment, namely a molten form. So we have this hot, solid inner core surrounded by an outer core that extends between 2,900 and about 5,100 kilometers. So it goes from the base. The top of the iron core is about 2,900 kilometers below our feet. 
In total, it contains about 30% of the mass of the Earth, and it's molten, it's liquid. And this is going to be important to us here in just a second. Now, that forms all the dense stuff that sank to the bottom. What about the silicates that floated to the top? Well, the first layer of silicates that you run into is this really thick layer of mushy silicates that extends from the top of the molten iron core, about 2,900 kilometers down, up to about only 100 kilometers below our feet. This silicates in here are, they're not quite molten, they're not quite liquid, but they're not quite solid, they're kind of mushy. And if you wanted to get an idea of what their consistency is like, think of Play-Doh or, or Silly Putty. That's about the right kind of consistency for this stuff. We call this the mantle, because it sort of forms kind of a mantle, kind of like a jacket around this inner solid iron and outer liquid iron cores. This mantle consists primarily of silicates. It's kind of mushy. It contains like 67% of the mass of the Earth. It's a huge structure that stretches from the outer core up to just below the crust. It's only when you get out to the very last bit, in round numbers between, well, what we're standing on, the crust, down to anywhere from 50 kilometers below your feet in the ocean floor to as much as 100 kilometers or more under the deep uh, continental plates, you get the crust. On the crust, the pressure's off, the silicates solidify, you get the hard rock around you. There are little pockets of molten rock that form in this, and in between them, in between the solid crust out here, which extends, like I said, between 50 and 100 kilometers below our feet, and the top of the mantle, you'll notice I've drawn in this picture a little tiny thin layer. This is a tiny thin layer where you start to make the transition from the crust down to the mantle. You get a bunch of broken up rock, and you get a bunch of rock that's starting to turn into this mushy form. It actually forms a kind of loose layer that the crust literally floats on top of the mantle, on top of this slightly loose layer, and it's actually able to slide back and forth. And that's going to be kind of the grease, if you will, for this effect of plate tectonics. So you slice into the earth. It looks like sort of a, a really fancy bonbon with a solid middle, kind of the soft, gooey caramel up here, the thick nougat up here, and then a thin layer of chocolate. Yeah, it's Halloween. We're thinking about candy. All right. What are some of the impacts of this structure? Well, one of them that's important to us is that outer core that's molten iron. If we look in the middle of that, we get the deep, pressure-frozen, solid iron core. It's really hot at the base of that. So at the base of the molten, molten outer core, it's going to be really, really hot. But as I go up towards the top of the molten iron core, the temperature's going to drop off. It's going to get a lot cooler. So we get a situation like you get if you put a pan of water on a stove. You turn on the gas or the, or the electricity on, on the stove. You get a hot bottom on the pot but you get cool water on top, so you get heat trying to flow from the hot regions to the cool regions. And what happens? Well, after a while, little bits of hot water rise, give up their heat to the top layer, and they displace colder water down to the bottom of the pot. And pretty soon, after a while, you get a nice rolling boil going in that pot. Well, the same thing's going to happen inside the outer mantle. You've got a hot bottom from the hot solid core. You've got a cool upper place up there where it makes the transition between the iron core and the bottom of the mantle. And so pretty sure if you've got a liquid material, you're going to start getting generation of convection currents in there. The stuff is literally going to be sitting there boiling and circulating away. Well, if you've got a boiling, circulating, conducting fluid, you've built yourself something called a dynamo. So a dynamo, just like a dynamo inside of a, a generator inside of a dam, if you get a flowing, electrically conducting fluid with convection currents inside of this thing, you've set up an electric dynamo. 
And if you set up an electric dynamo, changing electric fields produce magnetic fields. You get a current flow, and a current through a wire makes an electromagnet. The electric currents that you get flowing in, this, in the liquid outer core produce a geomagnetic field. So you get a very, very strong magnetic field that threads its way out through the mantle and out into space. So the fact that we've got a liquid outer core that's made of a conducting metal, it's made of iron and nickel, is very, very important to us because it's responsible for generating the magnetic field. The magnetic field is generated in place. It isn't just simply frozen in. It's not like a chunk of iron that has a magnet frozen into it when it's solid. You actually generate and keep regenerating the magnetic field over and over again. It's a combination of this gravity convection motion aided and embedded by the rapid rotation of the Earth. And so if I look out into space, I step away from the Earth, I find the Earth down here, but I find if I look at the solar wind, this breeze of, of charged particles that comes off the sun all the time, is being blocked from hitting the Earth by this immense magnetic field. There's lots of details in here. We're not going to talk a lot about the details in the magnetic field in this class. We just don't have time. But the Earth's magnetic field is strong enough to actually buffet away the solar wind. So it plays a number of important roles in the Earth. The fact that the Earth has a magnetic field is telling us that there's some kind, a strong magnetic field is telling us that some kind of dynamo process is going on in the middle. It's obviously a very complicated dynamo. It changes in time. You may have heard about things like magnetic field reversals in the Earth. So it's a very dynamic system. But we're going to look throughout the solar system for magnetic fields because a magnetic field, a strong magnetic field, could be a sign that even without being able to sit on the planet and do seismology, hey, there might be a differentiated molten iron core down there creating a dynamo or <coughs> some other kind of dynamo-like process going on inside that planet or that moon. So seeing a magnetic field is giving you an important hint to what's going on in the interior of the planet. And in the case of the Earth, we can verify this directly by our models of the interior of the Earth derived from seismology. Which, of course, brings us to the question of, so how do I know all this? How do I know this, this you know, sort of bonbon layer cake structure deep in the interior of the Earth? Well, the way we know it is the Earth is a very dynamic place. And earthquakes, which occur every now and then, produce seismic waves. They literally smack the Earth and cause it to ring. There's two different kinds of waves that are going to be of importance to us. First of these are called P waves. P wave stands for pressure waves. These are compression waves. A little cartoon here of a hand working a spring. Compression is where you take adjacent material, you compress it, and then release it. Compress and release, compress and release, compress and release. An example of a pressure wave is sound. Right? I'm making air compress and release, compress and release, and that modulated with through the mouth makes sound, and you're hearing my voice come across the room. So I transmit energy by compression and rarefaction. The other way I can make a wave is an S wave. S stands for shearing. Shearing means things sliding back and forth relative to each other. And the analogy of shearing is instead of having a slinky spring that you're pushing and, and pulling to make the, the waves go through, you've got a string or rope and you're wiggling it up and down and you're producing waves like that. Well, of course, the interior of the earth is not going to be like a rope. It's really going to be like a pair of rocks. So if I'm starting up a, um, pressure, a, a shear wave, an S wave, what I'm doing is I'm making a sliding some rock against each other. This piece of rock slides against this rock, which causes this rock to slide, which causes this rock to slide. And you get the kind of effect of like people doing the wave in a stadium. Person gets up and the next person gets up until you get this up-down shearing motion. 
So if you wanted to get an idea of what these waves will look like, I mean, any of you ever experienced an earthquake? I grew up in California. We used to get them all the time. A few people did. You get two sensations. P waves, if I wanted to make P waves pressure waves, I can do that. Not terribly effective. I just I thump. In fact, you can make a device called a thumper. It's basically a set of explosives that bounce up and down. Seismic uh, surveyors use them to look for oil fields. So that makes P waves. If I wanted to make S waves, I would slide motion back and forth. I would be putting motion in a swaying motion back and forth. So you can think of P as pounding and S waves shearing or swaying back and forth. You're kind of swinging back and forth this way. And the Earth is swinging back and forth just a little bit, although I'm small, the Earth is big, it's not much. So we have to have some way to transmit the energy in. We'll do that through plate tectonics. Now these waves propagate through the material of the Earth's interior. So let's say we've got an earthquake go off over here. The P waves, are, the pressure waves, are going to pass through everything. They're going to pass through liquids. They're going to pass through solids. They're going to pass through ocean. They're going to pass through air. Because all they do is they compress and release. The shear waves are different. If I shear one rock against another, it does a pretty good job. But if I shear liquid against liquid, it's kind of gooey and sticky, and it damps. So P waves will go through every part of the Earth, solid or liquid. But the shear waves, the swaying S waves, go through solids, but they damp out and are blocked by liquids. So I put a bunch of seismic stations all over the Earth. We use them to watch for x-rays. I mean, x-rays. <laughs> use them to watch for seismic waves coming from, uh, from earthquakes. Wow, I don't know where that came from. Um, if I'm out here, where all the waves are coming through the solid portions of the Earth, like the crust and the mantle, then I'll see a combination of P waves and S waves. I'll see the combination of pounding and swaying that I get from the break in the earthquake. However, some of the waves are going to pass down through the liquid portions. The P waves are going to pass right on through on the opposite side of the Earth, and I see the P waves from that. But the S waves, they mush out in the liquid portions. So I don't see any S waves back here on the opposite side of the Earth from the, from the um, earthquake. I see only P waves. So close in, I see P and S waves. Over here, I only see the pressure waves. So if you dot the Earth with all these different seismic stations, you're going to go in and out of the shadow of the outer molten core. And so playing some games with the details of how that works, you can actually look inside the Earth the way a doctor looks inside your body using like a nuclear magnetic resonance scanner. You watch the waves pass through dense material, they slow down, they go through low density material, they speed up a little bit. There's differences in the wave speed, so you can get an idea of the different densities. Uh, different temperatures cause differences of response in the waves. There's a lot of different information you can put together and you can literally, well, okay, with the help of a bunch of seismic stations and one hell of a big supercomputer, can actually reconstruct the interior of the Earth. The amount of energy released in earthquakes can be quite prodigious. Over here on the left, I show a seismic record from a series of stations, Sri Lanka, Diego Garcia out in the Indian Ocean, Mongolia, uh, New Guinea, um, South Africa, uh, Alaska, uh, South Atlantic Ocean, the Antarctic, California, and Easter Island. The earthquake started here. This turns out to be the earthquake that a few years ago caused those, those terrible tsunamis in Indonesia. Here's the seismic wave rattling around the Earth multiple times. 
The earthquakes that caused the tsunamis that killed almost a quarter million people were so strong, they caused the entire earth to ring like a bell. And you could actually see the waves echo through. They went around the earth and circled it many times, losing power as they went. So the earthquake is, earthquakes are very, very powerful ways to see inside the earth. There's other signatures that you can get on top of anything. If you release any energy in the crust, it causes the earth to ring. A few weeks ago, the North Koreans lit off a primitive nuclear weapon. As a consequence, people were able to confirm that because they saw the seismic signature of the underground explosion. It was very characteristic of the type of energy deposition. And in fact, during the Cold War, the earth was rimmed with all these seismic stations to basically watch that the other guy wasn't cheating on the nuclear test ban. Well, the result of that, of course, is all that data, especially as people sort of got tired of testing nuclear weapons, allowed geologists to completely telegraph the Earth. And they actually were able to dice it up and look on the inside as if they could simply slice it open like a cake and look on the inside of the layers. So what did we learn from that? Well, part of what we learned, of course, is that layer cake bonbon, sort of you know, solid central core of iron and nickel, followed by an outer molten iron core, followed by this thick, mushy mantle, followed by the silicates on top. That gives us the picture of the interiors informed by seismology. Well, let's step back a little bit now. Let's actually go to the crust of the Earth, because this is the place where we have most of our observations, because we stand on top of the crust of the Earth. The crust of the Earth is not a complete piece. It's not like a completely assembled eggshell, but in fact, it's broken. It's broken up into 16 rigid pieces of various sizes. And these sizes vary in thickness from very, very thin oceanic plates, which can get as thin as 10 kilometers thick, up to thick continental plates, they run about 50 kilometers thick max, maybe a little bit thicker in some places, but the rest of the 50 kilometers that makes up the 100 of the thickness of the crust is part of the transition zone between the crust and the mantle. So I get two different types of plates, really, really thin ocean crusts and really, really thick continental crust plates. And there's 16 of them, and they all interlock with each other and form a complete hole on the outside of the Earth and seal up. Now, these plates float above the mantle on top of a very complex transition zone that exists between the mushy silicates below and the solid silicates above. This place where the, is where we're going to get most of the lavas, the so-called basaltic lavas. These are iron-bearing lavas that are going to float up, occasionally work their way to the surface and spew out as volcanoes. And it also serves, because it's made up of broken rock and this sort of semi-liquid junk, semi-molten junk, it acts as a kind of lubricant. So the Earth is not actually stuck, glued to the mantle. The crust is not glued to the mantle. But in fact, it slides around on top of it. And the plates are actually able to slide around and grind against each other. And they all move together so that the whole thing stays stitched together. But it gives us a very, very dynamic crust. So the crust of the Earth is, a solid is, is 16 separate solid pieces riding on top of a thin lubrication layer where we get most of our, our basaltic lavas riding on top of the mantle. And then they slowly slide around over the surface of the Earth. And that gives us a lot of the dynamism of the, of the surface. Here's a map of the Earth laid out. This is now removing the ocean so you can see the ocean floor. You can see now the boundaries between these different plates. They're outlined in blue here. You can see some of them include both continents and oceans. For example, the North America plate extends to the middle of the North Atlantic and just out to California, but not quite. The Pacific plate is an immense plate that's mostly the Pacific Ocean Basin, except some little tiny bits, especially along the western coast of California. 
There are some really, really tiny little plates. There's some fairly large plates like the South American one. But adding them all up together, there's about 16 plates in all. One of the smallest ones is a little tiny broken up plate up here near the Straits of Juan de Fuca in Washington. So they run in all kinds of different sizes. The yellow dots that are spattered all over the place, those are the epicenters of earthquakes. So the first thing that jumps out at you is the plate boundaries are literally outlined, for the most part, with earthquakes. They turn out to be the primary locus and source of earthquakes. Not exactly. Over here, for example, there are a lot of earthquakes occurring in lots of spots away from these boundaries here. And occasionally you'll see places where there are these red triangles. They don't show up quite as good in this picture. Lines of them all over the Pacific, those are volcanoes. Those are places where basaltic lavas are busting through to the surface and repaving. Also showing a very strong preference for the boundaries between plates. This whole section in here, which is lit up in yellow and, and, and red, is the site of some of the strongest earthquake activity in the world. This is down in Indonesia, down towards the Indonesian plates and areas like that. But there are exceptions. There's a volcano sitting right out in the middle of nowhere. That's Mauna Loa on the big island of Hawaii. So it's not always exactly on plate boundaries, but you know, 99 plus percent of all the activity on the Earth occurs on the plate boundaries. Now the reason why these plates just, they don't just float, they also move. And the reason they move is the mantle isn't solid. It's kind of mushy, kind of like Play-Doh. And it actually gets a kind of a rolling convection going. And so you get a kind of, and it's very slow rolling convection going on in the Earth. So as it goes on, the slow rolling flow slowly drags the plate that's riding on top of that position. If you've got a place where the flow is rising up and then goes up and pushes away, you'll actually be trying to pull the two plates apart. If you've got a place where the two flows are converging together, you'll shove the plates towards each other. And if you've got a pair of flows that are going in opposite directions, you can also shear the plates, grind them past each other. So that gives us three types of boundaries can occur on the Earth. The speeds in these things are very, very slow. Okay? Even though I draw these big arrows here, we're talking about centimeters per year maximum. These are really slow motions. So there's three kinds of motions you can get. The two plates can slide and grind past each other laterally. They can be drawn together and collide together. Or the convection current can be pulling them apart and slowly taking two-part plates and moving them apart. So you're driven by these convection currents in the mantle because the mantle is not fully solidified. If the mantle had been cool enough to solidify, plate tectonics would cease because there'd be no motive power to drag the plates along. This is to show you that they really do move. These are a series of stations on the Earth which are tied to the global positioning satellites, and they're watching the speed of the motion from year to year of these plates. The arrows here are drawn super exaggerated. The highest speeds we're talking about here are a couple of centimeters per year. So these are really, really fine measurements. And you can see the general flow here. For example, the North America plate slowly drifting to the west. You can see the European plate is slowly drifting off to the northwest. This Indian plate's kind of smashing up here. Into, uh, into the Himalayas and so forth. So you can see plates moving apart, sli plates sliding past each other, and we can actually map these motions out. If I map these motions out in detail, I can actually trace them back in time. And so taking those single measurements of motions, I can actually reproduce what the Earth's surface looked like starting from 
in this case about 700 million years ago and following this effect of continental drift. Notice that people noticed for a long time when they made good world maps that, you know, the South American Atlantic coast looks an awful lot like a the other opposite side of a puzzle piece from the African Atlantic coast. And this sort of section of the eastern United States really did kind of want to slot on to the north northwestern African coast. People thought that was just completely crazy. It's like looking at faces in the clouds. But as people began to measure and understand how plate tectonics work, the answer is not quite so crazy after all. The Earth is extremely dynamic on timescales of millions of years. One more time, just because it's a really cool movie. So you go from a supercontinent of Pangaea and you go through all these changes. You look around here, Ohio was not the same place many years ago. Some of the places were ocean floors, some places were mountains, and they changed position. This whole idea of uplift and erosion, pulling down and pushing up, is all part of the dynamism of the Earth. So as I said before, there are two kinds of plate boundaries, three kinds of plate boundaries. Ooh, three kinds of plate boundaries. The transform boundary. Now I'm going to give names to these. If I got two plates sliding past each other, that's called a transform boundary. If I get two plates getting colliding together, they're converging, I call it a convergent boundary. And similarly, if I get two plates getting pulled apart, they're diverging, and I call it a divergent boundary. So a, a shearing transform boundary, being sliding past each other, colliding convergent boundaries, and diverging divergent boundaries, getting pulled apart. Let's look in more detail at each of these boundaries and see how they work and where they're important to us. Here's an example of a transform boundary. It occurs between the North America plate, which has a general sort of southeastern motion, compared to the Pacific plate, which kind of got a general northwestern drift to it. The section of it that makes landfall between San Francisco and the Bay of Cortez down here in Paja, California, forms a long geographic feature known as the San Andreas Fault. I went to school there, I went to school there, and I grew up there. So I've, I know the San Andreas Fault fairly well. Here's a section of the San Andreas Fault out in the desert just near where I lived. If you were to stand there and make measurements with stations, you would find that the, North Amer that the Pacific Plate was slowly grinding to the north, while another section of California was slowly sliding off to the south. And the boundary between these is where the two rub together. As the two rub together, they stick and they catch and they build up tension, and every now and then, bam, the whole thing jumps, sometimes a meter, sometimes tens of meters. Well, you move that much Earth that fast, like happened, for example, on a morning 100 years ago in 1906, you get a magnitude 8 earthquake, and it flattens the city of San Francisco completely. So you dump a tremendous amount of energy, and you suddenly have the entire Earth suddenly sway to one side. You literally pick up and jump. There's a, couple of these there's a couple of these things where you've jumped, where you've had roads crossing faults, and the roads just no longer touch together anymore after the earthquake hits. It makes an abrupt jump, an abrupt, abrupt input of energy right on the surface or deep down in the interior and can cause tremendously destructive earthquakes. Here's some examples of convergent boundaries. These are boundaries where two plates are crashing together. On the top, you see a continental plate, the South American plate, bashing into something called the Nazca plate, which is out in the Pacific Ocean. Between them, the one plate, the bigger plate, shoves the smaller plate below it. And so instead of colliding and pushing up, they collide and one gets shoved underneath the other. And so you get this effect called subduction. You literally take the plate, 
shove it from the surface of the ocean floor and shove it down into the lower layers. When you shove it down to the lower layers, the pressure gets big, it heats up, and it begins to melt. And you reset all the atomic clocks, if you will, all the radioactive isotope clocks in that stuff. Where the response of the other side is, where it's pushing against it and shoving the plate down, the land buckles. And where the land buckles, we get the Andes Mountain Range. The Andes Mountain Range used to be lower continental materials, now been shoved up in some areas to 20,000 foot elevation. The other place you can get convergent boundaries is when two ocean plates meet together. For example, where the Pacific Plate bashes into the Eurasian Plate, and they bash into each other, forming a deep ocean trench called the Japan Trench. And every now and then, they stick. And as they stick, they occasionally release. But now, because it's a sinking motion, the release break is vertical. So you get these tremendous push up in the land cause also tremendously destructive earthquakes, like the big Kobe earthquake here. But when one of these happened in Indonesia, the seafloor, I can't remember in this one whether the seafloor dropped abruptly or the seafloor thrust up abruptly, that's what caused the tsunami. It was basically a tremendous vertical motion dumping all that stored energy into the ocean. It had to go into one place, and it went into a tremendous killer wave. So these are examples of the kind of phenomena you get at convergent boundaries, you get volcano uplift and things like that. You get mountain uplift, and you get subduction zones with powerful vertical earthquake zones. Divergent boundaries are where the two plates are getting yanked apart. And a good example of a divergent boundary is between the European plate and the North America plate, which meet out in the middle of the North Atlantic. If I peel away the North Atlantic Ocean, what I find is a huge crack in the Earth. Out of that crack, a little bit of lava slowly oozes out. I mean, we're only talking about a couple centimeters a year. And it solidifies. As the plates pull apart, I go through and I see progressively younger and younger and younger rock until I hit the boundary. Then I cross over, see just as young a rock, and as I move away on the other side, the rock gets progressively older as it moves away. It was observations of like this from the, con from the divergent boundary under the North Atlantic that convinced people that this idea of continental drift was not nuts because you could actually measure the drift in the ages of the rock getting older as you move away from the crack. The most dramatic manifestation of this divergent boundary is up in Iceland where the North Atlantic Ridge actually cuts the island in half. All along that crack are where the immense volcanoes that make Iceland such a really cool place geographically live. The Eurasian plates heading off to the east, the North America plates heading off to the west, and Iceland is literally getting torn in two. One half heading towards North, with North America, the other half heading with, um, towards Europe. And in between, new crust is being created constantly from volcanoes. In fact, here's a section of that crack right here with a river boundary running across it. So this is literally where the Earth, this is all brand new crust beginning to emerge from underneath the Earth. So on the subduction zone, we destroy old crust. In a divergent region where it comes apart, we create new crust in its, in its wake. So these are places where we get destruction of old material and renewal and repaving of the surface of the Earth. So that's why the Earth has very young structures all over it. It's only in the deep continental shelves, I'm sorry, deep continental shields that you find the oldest rock because they're far away from any volcanic activity. They're far away from the boundaries, which is where all of the destruction and repaving occurs. 
But there's one other effect that goes on on the Earth. There is an exception to the all activity that goes on at the boundaries, and that are hot spots. Occasionally, right in the middle of a plate, a bit of this basaltic magma, this basaltic lava that builds up in the transition boundary, builds up enough that it forms a hot spot underneath the middle of the plate, and it breaks through and begins just sort of gooing lava up on the surface. Because the lava is gooing in place, it just slowly builds up a bigger and bigger structure. We call these a hot spot. Under the hot spot, you build up what's called a shield volcano, just ooze and splat, ooze and splat in place, more or less in place. And we call it a shield volcano because when you look at it from above, it looks like an old-fashioned you know, shield and spear kind of shield. The plate, however, is not standing still. It's slowly sliding a bit. So, for example, in the case of the Pacific plate, the plate is slowly sliding off towards the, towards the north, and so it's moving over the stationary hotspot below. And what you get in that case is you get shield volcano chains. So, for example, the Hawaiian Island chain. If you walk through the Hawaiian Island chain, you find that the big island of Hawaii is the youngest. It's got the active volcano of Mauna Kea. And as you march up through Maui and Oahu and all through the other islands up the chain, the rock gets progressively older and older and older. You don't have ex extinct volcanoes anymore. So as you go further up the chain, they get older. So here's a, a cartoon. This is the Pacific hotspot underneath the big island of Hawaii. It's the youngest place. Maui's the next youngest, followed by Oahu and Kauai, and all the way up the chain, as the plate, the Pacific plate, slides over the hotspot boundary. That's why the Mauna Kea volcano doesn't grow quite so big, because the hotspot slides out from over it before it can grow very large. Just big enough to broach the surface, but not much else. And if you look at the ocean, here's the big island of Hawaii down here, you see this immense chain making a long-time record of the slide of the Pacific Plate. This is what's known as the Hawaii Emperor Seamount chain. You also see another set of stuff up here, the Aleutian Islands. That's a plate boundary, and there's the subduction trench, and all the volcanoes and earthquakes of the Aleutian Island chain is a boundary chain, but this is a hotspot chain. So we'll look on other planets. Do we see chains of volcanoes, or do we see single stationary shield volcanoes, which might be the places for hotspots? The Earth is dynamic. If any lesson comes out of today, it's that the Earth is a dynamic and evolving planet. The surface has been reshaped constantly by tectonic and weather forces that have acted over billions of years of its history, and that most of the surface as a result of this activity is fairly young. It's only about 100 million years old, except in those continental shields which are far from the activity. It's active today because the interior is still hot. It's still liquid. It's still molten inside. It started out in a molten state, but it's got a lot of radioactive material because it's so big that radioactive heat actually keeps the interior hotter. Remember the Comte de Buffon yesterday and Kelvin tried to estimate the age of the Earth by saying how long would it take to cool. They didn't reckon on radioactivity, not just for radioactive aging, but for radioactivity in the bulk of the Earth keeping it hot. And tomorrow we'll look at the atmosphere of the Earth.